Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Christopher Greenwald. He's the Head of Sustainable Investment Research and Stewardship at UBS Asset Management. This conversation today covers the challenges of managing global investments to a climate-aware strategy. This is at the time when many countries are setting different climate change regulations at a varying pace. We discuss the views around fiduciary duty and how it lines up to ESG and climate change. We then look at the increasing level of collaboration between asset owners to ensure a more efficient and coordinated approach between working with companies. We then cover the considerations that underlie passive equity strategies and integrating climate change goals and the issues of tracking error. Finally, we look to the future and we discuss the new data metrics that are emerging in the market how the definitions of sustainability are changed and being deepened in particular. We then also look at how financial innovations are impacting the ability to mobilize capital to move towards a low carbon world. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, I think the first place maybe to kick off is there's been obviously a lot of research around the impact of of climate. um, And we've had some very clear work done from the UN around specific SDGs that actually line up with the climate change and also about affordable, reliable, sustainable, modern energy. Um, And particularly in Australia, we've seen a number of asset owners that have started to integrate ESG and particularly climate into their portfolios. I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, how do investors need to think about integrating um, climate change goals into their portfolios? What are the key challenges that they face as they do this? Well, I think it's important for um, investors to identify um, the companies that are the best position for transition to a low carbon future. And this can be done both actively and, and passively. In the active context, uh, it's also possible to do this across equities and fixed income. We tend to focus our low carbon active strategies around um, mitigation, adaptation, and transition to identify the leading companies uh, within each of these categories. So for mitigation, we're looking at companies that are leading in reducing CO2 emissions in their own operations. For adaptation, we're looking at companies that are providing solutions um, to help other companies reduce their CO2 emissions. And then for transition, we're looking at companies that are moving their business models from reliance upon fossil fuels to um, more focus on renewables going forward. Within the passive context, there's a lot of opportunity we see for investors to track their underlying market cap indices, but nonetheless reduce CO2 emissions. And it's possible to do that not by fundamentally changing allocations to sectors or geographies, but to reweight companies within those buckets to favor and overweight companies that are on a positive transition to a low carbon future and underweight companies that are at higher risk for climate change. And um, we've demonstrated that through both equity and fixed income passive strategies that it's possible to do that while nonetheless maintaining a relatively tight tracking error to the underlying benchmark. And I think it's also important to emphasize for both an active approach or a passive approach, it's important for investors to supplement that through an effective engagement program. 
it doesn't really make a difference if certain portfolios are decarbonized, but the world remains on a, a path to a significant increases in terms of global warming. So it's very important that we actually reach out to and engage those companies that remain significant risk to the environment to get them to change because it ultimately needs to result in actual changes in the world to reach a low carbon future. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned there around you know, re-weighting companies based on, on what they're doing and where they're up to in that process. Around the world, there's some very different regulatory environments that, that we see. Um, different uh, countries have got very much, you know, fostering a lot of a lot of uh, new green energy style investments. We've also seen a lot more uh, legislative changes to try and reduce the carbon um, that come out from cars, from manufacturing, and so forth. How do you then think about different regulations and how that plays into the strategies that you put forward, whether it's on an equity point of view or, or fixed income? Well, I think when it comes to low carbon investing and in- you could make the same, um, I think, argument for sustainable investing more broadly. In this situation, it's not really being driven by regulation. Um, if anything, the regulation is attempting to catch up to where investors already are. Just seen a huge allocation to more sustainable and low carbon strategies over the, over the past couple of years. And I think we've just seen an increasing number of asset owners recognizing that this is a way for finding companies that are effectively managing their business for the medium to long term, provide unique investment opportunities over the next three, five to 10 years. So there are differences in terms of the regulatory environments across countries, but I think the direction of travel for how regulation is developing is clear. It's going in the direction of the Paris Agreement. We're seeing more and more regulations coming into place that are incentivizing companies to transition to a low carbon future. And ultimately, uh, we see low carbon investing as simply the best way of finding the right opportunities. I mean, it's very difficult to find any CO2 emissions reduction uh, strategy from a company that's not also a cost reduction strategy. Uh, Virtually every low carbon product strategy is a growth opportunity for companies. And any effective strategic planning today is accounting for climate change risks and thinking about how the company needs to transition in light of those changes that are going on in terms of the global economy. So um, if anything, I think the the move to low carbon strategies is driven less by a response to regulation and more focus of this as a unique mechanism for finding the right investment opportunities. Let's maybe dig into some of one of the challenges that regulators face as they need to then think about fiduciary duty. Um, and how does fiduciary duty line up with the actual funds and performance? And there's been some back and forth around how to integrate climate risk into portfolios. There's very different views around the US and Australia and Europe around what fiduciary means alongside climate change. Curious to get your thoughts um, around what's, what's happening in, in that space and, and um, you know, where do you see some, some good progress? Well, I think in general, the, you know, the academic evidence on sustainable investing, low carbon strategies is um, pretty overwhelming that the integration of these factors into investment decision-making doesn't come at a cost in terms of financial returns. If anything, the evidence is showing that it leads to an increase in risk-adjusted returns, particularly if you look over a long-term time period. So I think the whole thinking around fiduciary duty is beginning to change. 
And what we've seen is probably the easiest entry point for investors is in their passive allocations. And it's now possible to demonstrate passive strategies that have very similar characteristics to index tracking portfolios, but nonetheless are decarbonizing and mitigating climate change risk in the weightings of those portfolios. Our own uh, climate aware strategies, which we've had in place since the beginning of 2017, have demonstrated that it's possible to have very low tracking error portfolios that nonetheless mitigate climate change risk and are supported by an engagement strategy for companies. And I think the, an increasing number of asset owners are recognizing that they can move to low carbon passive strategies without any major um, change to the risk return uh, profile of those portfolios, but it's a win-win situation where they're able to account for climate change risk in those allocations and have a positive impact on the companies that they're investing in. Let's dig into the passive piece there because I can clearly see how it's much easier for funds to start off in this particular place. I guess one of the challenges then is how far do you move against your tracking error, right? Or how far you move against the index and and the amount of tracking error that, that comes about because of these changes. What are you seeing in terms of, I guess, funds' willingness to move away from the index? It's, I guess it's not so difficult, particularly in the US, where you've got a large number of tech stocks that don't have the same sort of uh, high impact and, and high carbon. But in, maybe in particularly in Australia, where you do still have some mining companies that are still quite large, how do you then adjust for the potential tracking error that may occur in the case where you do need to downweight some of these companies? Well, what we found is it's possible to have a quite significant impact in terms of the carbon footprint of the portfolio while nonetheless maintaining sector allocations that are in line with the underlying benchmark. So there can be some slight changes in terms of allocations to different sectors, but the most important step to take is to reallocate the weightings within those sectors. So to overweight companies that are on a positive trajectory in terms of CO2 emissions reduction and underweight companies that are on Um, the wrong trajectory and that are at higher risk for climate change. So we've done this uh, by developing a unique uh, scoring approach that we call a glide path probability score, where we're looking at not only where companies are today, but what's the direction of travel? How are they reducing their CO2 emissions over time? And how does that trajectory relate to the International Energy Association estimate of where each industry needs to be to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. Um, And that leads to what we call a glide path probability score. So we can calculate the score for every company within each sector. And that leads to a reallocation within sectors to companies that are on the right glide path and an underweighting of companies that are on the wrong glide path. So there's sometimes a misconception that decarbonization requires major shifts in terms of sector allocations. Um, we found that it is really driven by reweighting the companies within sectors. So through this reweighting, we can reduce the carbon intensity of the portfolio by 50% today. So it has a significant impact in terms of the CO2 footprint while maintaining a tracking error that's about 30 to 40 basis points versus the underlying benchmark. Mm-hmm. There seems to be obviously a number of risks for different companies, different companies and different uh, sectors, as you've described, have got some different uh they face some different challenges. Obviously, some some areas they face physical challenges just generally as they have to tra- transform their business. There's other transition-related risks 
How do you then consider these different risks in terms of the ability to to see the glide path, obviously, of these companies? I'm curious to get you know, more detail around the individual challenges of these companies that, that you're thinking to, because I can think about a number of businesses in the manufacturing space that it becomes very challenging for them to become low carbon. They, they maybe are at a low rate at the moment. And as they try to reduce more, there's a lot of increased costs that come alongside it. How do you think about the easy wins for maybe some of the mining companies to reduce carbon quite quickly versus maybe some of the other companies that it'd be very hard to, for them to reduce their, their carbon emissions without significant costs? Well, there's um, a couple of things. The first is that we do look at the performance within sectors. So, you know, we're looking at the relative performance in, in different sectors. And the other thing is to look at quite a bit of data beyond just the actual CO2 emissions. So you need to look at both the direct CO2 emissions of the companies, but also scope three. What's the impact of their product portfolio over time? We also look at factors such as the reliance upon energy sources. Um, are they relying upon uh, fossil fuels or are they increasingly relying upon renewable energy sources? And that's usually a good metric for identifying companies that are on the right transition path in terms of their own strategies. The other key thing is to supplement what we're doing in terms of the data and the weightings of the portfolios with active engagements with companies. And so through active engagement, you can really get a much deeper understanding of how the company is addressing these issues at a more strategic level. And what are the, what are their, what's their planning that's being put into place to deal with things like physical risks? And how does it impact their long-term strategic orientation? So it is important for us to have dialogue with management on these companies to learn in more detail how they're addressing them. But also on the flip side, to demonstrate the kinds of changes that we expect them to see and that we want them to see over time. And so that's one of the reasons why we see engagement as a key element to any low carbon strategy, either active or passive. Can you give a bit more context maybe around what you see as an effective approach to, to engagement? you know, as you're working with companies um, and also with asset owners to, to engage and actually improve, what does that look like? Or what framework do you use as part of that process? Yeah, there's a couple of things that are important to emphasize. And the first is to focus on the companies that have the biggest impact. So we have a strategic engagement program that's really focused on the most impactful companies from a climate perspective. If you look at uh, the FTSE Developed World Index, for example, just the 50 largest CO2 emitters from the oil and gas and utility sectors comprise 27% of the total emissions of the entire index. So you can really have an outsized impact by focusing on the most impactful companies. And then secondly, the key thing that we do is we use a framework that companies and investors both understand and can relate to, which is the TCFD or Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. Um, and this is really the framework that's defining how companies are managing their climate risks and reporting on them in the future and linking them to their strategies. So it covers things like climate change governance, climate change risk management. What is the company doing in terms of scenario analysis? What are the metrics that they're using to measure progress? What are their targets? So by using a common framework that the companies are orienting around, it allows us to have a much more in-depth dialogue with the companies and come up with very specific and targeted engagement goals that they can understand. So we'll do a scorecard analysis around the TCFD before we even begin the discussion uh, with management 
um, so that we can have engagement goals that are relevant for them. And then the third key thing, particularly around climate, is to engage and work with other investors collaboratively. So we've been working quite extensively with the Climate Action 100 Plus Coalition, which represents over 500 institutional investors, now representing over 70 trillion in assets under management. And this is the largest collaborative engagement program in history that allows for investors to come together and to provide very coherent and targeted requests for companies to address climate change issues. One of the challenges previously around engagement had been that companies would complain that they would get different requests from different investors and they didn't really know how to react to that. And Climate Action has been very successful in coalescing the request for companies in a coherent manner, manner so that it's representing the entire coalition and gives companies very clear ideas about what they need to do to mitigate climate change risks. So we've been working with Climate Action on 29 companies where we're part of the coalitions and we're the lead engager on eight of the companies where we're representing the entire coalition. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of collaboration and work with the other investors to make sure we agree upon what the engagement goals are in advance. Um, but we've seen some very significant actual progress at these companies just over the past several years since climate action has been uh, underway. Are there any successful examples that you can give maybe of an engagement or, or, or a change? Obviously, we're working with so many asset owners and so much money. Uh, I could always imagine it's quite difficult to get everyone to agree, but is there been some particular standout cases that, that you could name? Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the companies we've been the lead engager on is Equinor, previously known as Statoil in, in Norway. Um, and we worked with the company for a couple of years and had um, quite a large number of meetings with senior management. And in 2019, at their annual shareholder meeting, they made some quite significant commitments to align their strategy with the Paris Agreement. And that was followed up this year with more specific and concrete targets about CO2 emissions reductions and linking that to senior executive compensation. So it's been a very uh, successful example where we've seen some quite bold public commitments that the company has made to transition its business. Earlier this year, another company where we were the lead engager is Repsol, which made the energy sector's first net zero commitment. This has had implications on a number of other companies in the energy sector. And we've now seen that extend to a number of other sectors where companies are now making net zero commitments. These are important first steps. They need to be backed up, of course, by more specific targets. So it's one thing to make a net zero commitment for 2050. I think increasingly over the next couple of years, we're going to see the requirement to really become concrete about what does that mean in the next five to 10 years and to become more specific about translating that longer term goal into some, some shorter term targets um, that we can actually measure as investors. Are you seeing in some of these cases that these these companies need to raise more more debt and equity to to facilitate this this trans, transformation? It's certainly, I think, the part of it, and we're seeing that reflected in the asset prices. I think, uh, and certainly the experience of 2020 has been that we've almost seen a fast forward of a kind of climate change scenario of what happens to companies when there's a significant drop off in demand for fossil fuels. And you can see how a number of companies that are reliant upon fossil fuels are not uh, well positioned for that transition. So I think it's really made the sort of fundamental risks to oil and gas companies in particular, a much more apparent for investors. So there's an increasing amount of pressure 
that companies are under to come up with a longer term plan. Where are they going to be in three, five, or 10 years? As we see the transition for the automobile sector towards electricity over the next decade, how are fossil fuel companies going to um, respond to that? And what are they doing to prepare their business models? So I think it's, it's less a question of short-term financing, but more a question of the strategic risks that these companies are facing and how can they convince investors that they have a long-term strategic plan that then uh, should be reflected in their valuations. That's a that's a huge challenge, particularly in markets that are seem to be very uh, sensitive to to missing earnings, obviously in the short term. So you've got this quarter by quarter style of market that moves, and then you've got the companies needing to line up with some very long term uh, strategic objectives. You know, how do you work with investors to actually make them see through the investment horizon? Because these things take do take quite a long time to show through. Curious on your thoughts there. Yeah, well, certainly, I think for the leading asset owners, they are thinking more in terms of returns over the next 5, 10, even 20 years to meet their pension obligations. Um, So they're certainly in the lead on this. But again, the experience of 2020 demonstrates that these long-term risks can have significant implications in the short term. And those implications can be very unpredictable and happen very quickly. So in order to be prepared for the series of shocks that we will anticipate over the next decade or so in the transition to a low-carbon future, there are going to be some quite rocky periods for investors in the short term. So it's really about future-proofing the portfolios for those short-term shocks when they come about. Do you think that you know this piece of being just low-carbon is then like a first step for funds to become even more ESG compliant and and have more integration more broadly? I think it is an important first step for a lot of investors. And one of the reasons uh, is that climate change has implications across all sectors. So it's very broad in terms of its impact. The material impacts of climate change on companies' performance is probably clearest. And then there's also quite a lot of data that's available, and we have a good history now of data in terms of CO2 emissions that investors can use to be able to integrate this systematically across their portfolios. So this is one of, one of the things that is why I think climate change is first on the list in terms of the issues uh, to integrate uh, within investment strategies. We're now seeing in the UN PRI framework, there are modules on climate risk that are going into the equity um, section of the questionnaire, as well as fixed income. So it's really becoming kind of a fundamental element to any kind of strategy of integrating sustainability into the investment process. You mentioned a little bit earlier there about the data reporting disclosure um, that you need to, to do this properly and, and to obviously create metrics and, and see how things are tracking. What, are, what are specifically do you think is missing? What are the data imperfections? I know a number of asset owners have complained that it's very hard in particular countries to get enough data. What do you still see as being a key issue around data that's maybe missing or better disclosure that you would require to, to do your job, obviously, um, a little bit easier? Yeah, I think we're in a pretty good position when it comes to the company's own operational CO2 emissions. So its own direct CO2 emissions or its emissions associated with electricity consumption. We now have good data for most uh, mid and large cap companies. There's still some imperfections, but I think we're getting to a pretty good place there uh, across a wide set of companies, which is why it's possible to do 
quite a lot of innovation across, uh, you know, passive strategies um, using scope one and scope two CO2 emissions. The area that's emerging, but is quite important is scope three emissions. So what's the actual impact of the CO2 emissions of the company's products and services when they're actually in use? Or what are the CO2 emissions of the supply chain? And so these are emerging areas that are um, quite significant that we need better data on. And the, the good news is that companies are definitely working on this and working on it quite quickly. And we've been engaging companies on how do they measure the CO2 impacts of their products and services on the environment? What are the models and frameworks that they're developing to be able to do that? It's still an emerging area, but uh, we, we have quite a number of engagements with companies to get uh, not only some ideas from them about how they're beginning to measure this, um, but also to demonstrate some of the modeling that we're using to be able to estimate what these impacts are. Um, so I think in 10 years time, we'll have a much richer data set when it comes to scope three emissions through the value chain. And, and that's really probably the biggest area of improvement that we could see over the next several years. That's definitely a tricky place because obviously as a company, they can be quite um, particular about where they source um, and potentially outsource different parts of the production or the supply chain that they use. And then say that them as a business that they have pretty low carbon, but it's because they've been sourcing different pieces of the uh, the product or the service that they're that they're providing from from other places. So they've been able to externalize some of those issues. So that's a, a, going to be a, I think a really interesting piece uh, as part of this process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had a project uh, with um, several universities over the past several years to take the insights from environmental science and apply it to the data that we have on the revenues that the companies have of the products and services to be able to measure this because the environmental sciences have been developing frameworks to measure for over 20 years. So there's quite a lot of research behind being able to estimate the, the impacts of products and services on the environment, for example. But companies are not so familiar with those frameworks. So we've been trying to take the insights from environmental science to come up with estimation models based on where the companies are selling their products uh, and what the products are that they're selling to be able to estimate the impact of their products and services on the environment, uh, for example. And then we're able to, through our engagements and dialogues with companies, share them the estimation models and then get their reaction to that. So we find that that's a very effective way for them to sort of take an estimation and then fine tune it or provide better context that, um, that they may have that we don't have as investors that ultimately can lead to better disclosure and reporting about what those impacts are. What help do you feel that you may require from regulators around the world to help push through some of the changes in companies? Or do you feel that investors enough, you know, have enough power on their own to, to make some of these changes? Well, I think regulators can do a lot to help the industry go to the next uh, stage particularly when it comes to defining what is sustainable. And this is really at the heart of the EU uh, taxonomy and the emerging EU regulation to really define clearly, what do we mean by sustainability? Here's the framework and to orient uh, investors more towards solutions that can lead to a low carbon economy future. And I think that can help improve the value chain of the tools that investors have to integrate sustainability and climate change risk into their investment strategies. We've had, I think in the early days of the emergence of sustainable investments, a number of different ESG rating agencies 
um, that have come out with sustainability ratings that are not correlated. And so it's led to a lot of confusion by investors because one rating agency will rate a company as positive on sustainability, another will say it's negative. Um, so it's not, it's not reached the degree of maturity that you see with say credit ratings. So I think the emerging EU regulation will help overcome that confusion. It will become clearer. What do we mean by a sustainable company? And then the rating agencies will no longer try to compete with one another for defining that standard and instead focus on giving the data and the tools to investors that they need to integrate and to identify those companies in as efficient manner as possible. So I think it has the potential to really change the dynamic of the value chain for sustainable investing. I really liked your point about you know the, the definition of what's sustainable. And particularly in a lot of products today, we still see that have very short warranty periods. You have lifestyle that um, a lifespan that just turns over every new every year there seems to be a new product or a new iteration of that product. Um, so I question really how some of these particular products and, and corporate uh, strategies are actually sustainable. Um, and so that's a real challenging piece for a lot of companies that have relied on these very short product life cycles that just keep turning over and these products then are just thrown in the bin. Um, and the electronics space is probably one of the worst offenders. I'm curious around you know, your thoughts uh, on, on that particular area and the pressure that maybe some of these companies may face um, around their strategy. This is a corporate strategy issue. No, absolutely. And the dynamics are, are changing you know, pretty quickly. I mean, if you look at the whole move to cloud computing, for example, it has a significant impact in terms of the CO2 footprint of a lot of IT companies that you might previously have thought were light in terms of CO2 emissions. They're actually now quite significant emitters of CO2 through their electricity consumption. So it does certainly change the dynamics in a number of ways, and one has to change the way one's analyzing companies. At the same time, it gives them a lot of opportunities because in transitioning to cloud computing, they're able to reduce the overall CO2 footprint of the entire value chain of, say, customer relationship management software. It's much more efficient through cloud computing um, than if it's done through installations at, on site for example. So it actually gives them an opportunity to demonstrate how they're reducing CO2 emissions through the transition to cloud computing by using more renewable energy sources. They're also able to demonstrate the impact that that can have in terms of a transition to a low carbon future. So on the one hand, it does represent a risk for these companies in terms of in increasing their CO2 footprint. On the other hand, they're able to demonstrate what is the positive impact that it has in terms of the overall transition that cloud computing has on the environment, for example. So uh, one really has to kind of change as technology changes in terms of how we're analyzing both the risks, but also the opportunities when it comes to carbon emissions. So final question, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, what, what maybe needs to happen from a financial innovation point of view. You mentioned obviously a lot of work being done from a, an equity, active point of view, from an equity and debt perspective. Are there any particular constraints you, you can see from a financial innovation point of view in terms of you know, maybe holding back some of the change that we've seen on, in climate change strategies or ESG strategies more broadly? I don't think there's major uh, roadblocks in terms of innovation, but I think it's important for investors um, to continually evolve and push for greater data and disclosure from companies. So, you know, the whole area of scope three emissions that I mentioned before, it's very important to 
not be satisfied with the data that we have, but to really push the next generation of data that we'll need going forward. The other key thing that I think is important to ensure innovation over time is to continue a dialogue between asset owners and asset managers on the most effective mechanisms for integrating climate change risks into strategies, uh, as well as the most effective approaches when it comes to engagement. We have developed uh, a UBS Asset Management and Climate Advisory Board that meets on a regular basis with our clients that are investing in low carbon strategies. And we found that's a very effective mechanism for sharing insights on the results of our engagement program. What are we learning from companies that's actually happening in the real world? What are some emerging new data sets to address new issues such as physical climate change risks that we can integrate into the strategies? So I think having an open and continual dialogue with asset owners from the asset managers is a very effective means for making sure that we're continuing to evolve as the data evolves and as the industry changes so quickly. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Chris. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.